Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Anzia. Um, I'm on the faculty in the Travers Department. It's great to see all of you here. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce the, the panelists for our final panel today, which is titled Prospects for Governing Amid Polarization. I think this is an especially important topic um, for political science, uh, for political scientists to be engaging in. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that outside of the Traverse Department, political science scientists tend to shy away from questions about governance a little more so than they do questions about representation. Um, my personal view is that we, um, as political scientists, need to dedicate more attention to questions about whether our government or our governments are producing good policies um, and outcomes that are uh, socially um, desirable. You know, we all care about this, whether our government can produce uh, socially desirable outcomes. But let's be honest, I think... Um, you can have a highly representative government or a government agency that is uh, designed to incorporate all of the relevant stakeholders that is absolutely terrible at, at solving society's big problems, right? So, um, and I think that political scientists tend to be more comfortable talking about representation, maybe out of fear that, gosh, if I have to say something about whether we're getting good outcomes, maybe I'm sort of veering into normative terrain. And I think that our department is one that uh, is, is embracing those questions, um, and I think we need to do more of it. So um, the first panelist that I'm excited to welcome is Pamela Ban. Pamela is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego. She's an expert on legislatures, political parties, and elections in the United States. She's published uh, and is working on a variety of topics, including women's representation, the incumbency advantage, and how agencies respond to lobbying and lobbyists. So uh, without further delay, welcome Pamela. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so this panel was asked to provide some comments on uh, governing amid polarization. And I think this is a very broad and very important topic. And so 15 minutes on it can't obviously cover everything important about it, but I'm going to try my best. Um, unlike the uh, previous uh, speakers, I'm going to actually not focus on a single paper and take you through that, but I'm going to instead first set um, kind of an empirical fact background about what polarization in Congress is dive into some details on um, some recent things that political scientists have been interested in, and then focus in on um, a part, some, some details that underlie a particular branch of my current research agenda. So we've already kind of seen some um, data, data thrown up on, on the slides uh, from previous speakers about uh, the trends and patterns of polarization. But for those of you who aren't, uh, who don't specialize in American politics or who aren't uh, social scientists, the, the a basic question, uh, starting to, to go back to the basics, is how do we actually measure polarization in Congress? Uh, and a very common way that political scientists have done this is to use the roll call voting behavior of members of Congress. And we do this because we have, it's easily accessible data, it's a lot of data, and, you know, we do care about how members of Congress vote. And we think that that is a good indication of what members of their positions, what members' positions on certain issues are. And so, uh, what political scientists have done is they take the roll call voting background of every member of Congress, and they use these repeated roll call votes to estimate 
the positions that these legislators, that these members of Congress have on, um, on a set of scales. And we, we kind of, uh, we basically can boil this down into one dimension, into this primary scale that's going to capture, that's going to be able to represent the partisan disagreement, the partisan conflict between members of Congress. And we will also, we can also now do this and allow a legislator, a member of Congress's ideal point, their position, let's say, um, their ideology, to change over time. And so this is what you have actually heard when we have, se- when you have seen graphs earlier today that use something called DW nominate scores. This is actually what we, what we typically use to track polarization. Um, so we use these standard DW nominate scores based on the voting records of our members of Congress. And these scores will range, um, for each person, range from uh, negative one to a positive one. So that's going to be, you know, going from the most liberal Democrats to the most conservative Republicans. And so then when we think about partisan polarization in Congress, this is how we get to uh, measuring this. And we're going to measure it by taking the difference in the means across the political party. So we're going to look at the mean DW nominate score of Republicans in Congress, and then we're going to look at the mean DW nominate score of Democrats in Congress. And that's going to be, uh, that's a common measure of polarization in Congress that we use. So what does this look like? So this is, this graph is going to plot from um, 1870 all the way to, I think this ends um, just after 2010, the difference between the Republican mean and the Democratic mean. So the larger... The, the higher we get, that means that we get more, we, the Republicans and the Democrats in Congress are farther apart from each other. And so we see this trend, how we had a, a, a peak, uh, we had since the 70s, we have this polarization in Congress has really been steadily increasing rather steeply in recent times. So when we, when you talk, when you hear um, a lot of political scientists and, uh, and the news say that polarization in Congress has been increasing. This is kind of how we can visualize it using, using the data. So now when we break it down into, and we look at the actual trends of this uh, measure for Democrats and for Republicans, we can actually see that not only do we have growing polarization recently, but we also have asymmetric polarization. And this is because we see here that the Republicans are moving more away than the Democrats are. And so the Republicans move to the right. They're moving more to the right than the Democrats are moving more to the left. And so a lot of this gr- this gap between the parties, a lot of this growing polarization is attributed to the Republicans moving more extreme instead of the Democrats moving more extreme. So, of course, then, um, one question that you might have in your head is, okay, well, if we're thinking about measuring polarization across time, well, the actual, if we're looking, if, and if we're using roll call voting behavior in Congress to do so, well, the members of Congress are voting on different issues across time. And so the set of issues are changing. And so a lot of political scientists have wondered if this actually can, if, if, you know, like if legislators are becoming our individual, like if you take a certain, a given member of Congress, if they are moving more to the left or more to the right themselves, or if they're remaining constant and it's just new members of Congress who are more extreme and that's what, and they're coming to replace these old members and that's what's driving the polarization. But in order to answer this question, we have to hold the set of issues the same, right? Because Democrats back in the 70s are voting, what it means to be a Democrat in the 70s is different than what it means to be a Democrat today. And so we have, um, 
We can, we can look at, uh, we can actually hold constant the content of the agenda on which our members of Congress are voting and expressing preferences to see what is actually going on, what's actually, what's driving this polarization. And so there's actually a working paper, a, real, a new paper that I really like, um, by a set of authors at Harvard, Moskowitz, Rogowski, and Snyder, who are using, um, Project Vote Smart's national political awareness test data to actually hold the set of issues constant and look at whether legislators are themselves becoming more or less extreme. And so when they, when they hold the issue constant, when they hold, let's say, you know, like, let's look at a given set of issues across time for these legislators, they see, they still see that same growing polarization in Congress. And they still see that asymmetric polarization that I just showed you before. So they still, even when they hold issues constant, they still see Republicans moving more extreme um, than the Democrats are moving extreme. And so, but they don't find evidence that members are actually systematically moving to more extreme positions themselves. And they're, they're, so they look at and they see that a lot of this growing polarization in Congress is actually being dri- driven by replacement. So we have new members being elected to Congress and replacing old members, and these new members are the ones, are the new Republicans with the more extreme conservative positions. And that's what's actually, that's a big part of what's driving the uh, polarization trends that I just, that in the first graph that I showed you there. So what are, then, what are the consequences of these trends? What are the consequences of growing polarization in Congress? Well, we have a lot of political scientists who also study this, and we see that, you know, this has a big effect on legislative productivity. We see that Congress does tend to be more productive the least, the less, uh, the less polarization there is. And we observe less legislation passed in Congress even when the, um, when the House and the Senate are, um, are farther apart from each other. We also see that, you know, there tends to be uh, a correlation between uh, passing a, a failure to meet budget deadlines um, and, uh, and a failure to pass the annual appropriations bills that we need to uh, in order to fund our policies that uh, Congress will then pass afterwards. Um, we find that there's a delay, there's more delays when Congress is more polarized, but we actually also had seen this, uh, seen this pattern in the late 80s. So it's actually not clear if um, there is a direct, uh, if there is a direct correlation between polarization, the amount of polarization in Congress and the failure to meet deadlines. And then finally, this is kind of something that I'm more interested in, is um, what is the uh, consequence of polarization on the quality of legislative deliberation in Congress? And so if we just look at um, the amount of legislation that are considered under rules that are going to restrict amendments by the minority party, we see that that has increased along with the stark increase in polarization that we have observed. We've also seen the use of um, increased use of filibusters and holds in the Senate at the same time. But then, first of all, it's really hard to quantify the quality of deliberation in Congress, right? Like, we can look at these outcome measures. We can look at, you know, how many filibusters or how many holds, but that doesn't help us in what is actually, you know, like, what is the quality of deliberation or negotiation or compromise going on in Congress. And to do that, we would have to dig deep more into the language of, you know, like, what is actually, what are these members actually deliberating on, and is there actual useful negotiation process or compromises happening? So that's something that I'm personally interested in. 
And I'm interested in this in the committee stage. So um, these days, if we think about a bill hitting the floor of Congress for a vote, we kind of already know what's going to happen, right? You read the New York Times, journalists know if this bill is going to pass or not, and they can pretty accurately predict who's going to vote for it and who's not going to vote for it. So a lot of the action these days on legislation in Congress actually happens before a bill gets to the floor. And that is um, going to be ha- a lot of um, political scientists, including Woodrow Wilson, a lot of not a very well-known fact is that uh, he's famous not only for being a president, but also he was a political scientist before he was a president. Um, and he studied American politics, and he, and he studied Congress. And so just like this quote that Woodrow Wilson says, um, committees in Congress are actually where a lot of the workhorse, um, they're the workhorse units of Congress, and they're actually where a lot of the um, work on legislation and the work on bills is done. So if you're interesting, interested in how polarization has affected what happens in Congress, we should be looking within the committee level. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm really interested in. And so I'm actually going to show you something that's going to go against the grain a bit, but so um, here's an example. So this is a bill that was um, introduced in uh, the 113th Congress. This would have been in 2014. And this um, was a bill that was going to reform the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And so it was referred to, it has to do with agriculture, so it was referred to the Committee on Agriculture. And agriculture, you know, once a bill is referred to a committee, it has a variety of actions it can take. It can, you know, make changes. It can... Um, it can, it can introduce amendments, it can hold hearings, it can hold deliberations on it. Um, and then this bill actually, you know, went through that process and it hit the floor for a floor vote. And so it went through the committee process and it went to the floor. And it's really interesting if we look at now the voting patterns between Republicans and Democrats on this bill um, and we contrast and we compare the voting records of the people who had already seen this bill on committee versus people on the wider floor here. And so if we look at the floor passage vote, so we look at the um, percentage of members who voted yes on this bill, if we look at um, the floor members who were not committee members, so these are people who were not members on the Agriculture Committee who hadn't seen the bill before, we see this this was a Republican-dominated Congress, and we see that almost all, this is a typical party-line vote that we would expect. We see most Republicans voted in support, and only 17% of Democrats voted against it. But if we then look at how the committee members on agriculture voted on this bill at the same time, we see that all Republicans voted for it. But what's surprising here is that, what might be surprising to you, is that the Democrat, 82% of Democrats on that committee had voted for it. And so we hear a lot about, you know, partisan disagreement and polarization on floor votes in Congress. But if we actually dig down deep and see um, and look at, you know, like committee members and non-committee members, we actually kind of get this one beacon of bipartisanship that we see, uh, bipartisan behavior that we see in that committee. And then political scientists now are really, you know, we're, we have a lot of different theories to try to explain why this happens. This is, so I just showed you one example here, but this is actually very common across a lot of, across all different types of committees across Congress. So we look and we see that almost of non-unanimous bills in Congress, so these are um, bills that aren't just, you know, uh, you know, naming a post office, let's say, um, 84% of bills in Congress have at least half of the minority committee members voting in support of that bill. That doesn't seem very much like, you know, the partisan infights that we hear about in the news, right? So, uh, and almost 93% of the bills have at least some of the minority members voting in favor of that bill who had been on that committee that, that saw that bill. 
So, of course, now you might be thinking, okay, well, the people who are on the Committee on Agriculture are going to be different than the people who aren't on the Committee of Agriculture, right? We get people, you know, somebody who is from the state of Ohio, where I'm, where I'm from, is more likely to, you know, be uh, a member there, probably wants to be on the Committee on Agriculture, whereas somebody who is representing, let's say, San Francisco, the, the, member, of the member of Congress who's representing San Francisco, doesn't have a need to be on the Committee on Agriculture. And so there's a difference in the people who are going to be on the Committee and not. Well, so... In one paper that I have, I uh, use a strategy to causally identify the effect of being on a committee on how you vote on bills in that area. And I find that there is, even when you account for these differences of the different types of people who tend to sort onto these different types of committees, you still see that being on a committee does, does have an effect on the minority members voting against their party and voting with the majority party and getting, getting some of this. And that's where you find a lot of this bipartisan support. Okay, so just to wrap up, I wanted to also uh, show, um, I wanted to finish on something uh, else that I, I think is very, interested, uh, very interesting um, when we study what's going on in the committee stage in Congress, and it relates to polarization. Let's look at, we're going to look at it across time. So in a committee, of course, we don't have the roll call votes that we can use to get the same type of scores that we had, the DW nominate scores that I showed you at the beginning. So we can't easily track the disagreements or the agreements within the committee stage before the, again, this is before the bill hits the floor for a vote. But what we do have in the committee stage is we have these committee reports that come out on, on, come out for every bill that the committee reports to, and that the committee decides to move forward to the floor. And in these reports, so this is one, um, uh, this is for HR 2117 and the 112th Congress. We see here that in each report we can see uh, this section called minority views. Some committees call this dissenting views. And this is going to be the opportunity for the minority party to air their grievances with this bill. And so here we can see, you know, this is basically going to be the minority party talking about everything that they don't like about this bill usually and why, why you know, like you should not vote for it. So we can think of this section, this, the existence of this section or what's said in this section as amount of disagreement between the minority and majority parties on this piece of legislation. Um, and we can also then match it with some of these committee hearings that are also held around on the same bill to figure out exactly what different members of Congress are saying during the committee stage about this bill. And so I'm going to show you some trends just to finish with. So this is actually the number, the percentage of reports in Congress. So these are, again, right, this is during the committee stage. These are the percentage of reports with minority dissent. And so this is from the 104th Congress to the 114th, so this is starting in 1995 for now. And so if you remember that first graph I showed you, right, during 1995 to today, we had that that really significant increase in polarization. But what's really interesting is if you see here, right, during this time when polarization is really is sharply increasing, we're actually not seeing that big of an increase in the amount of dissent or the amount of my, the amount of um, unhappiness that the minority party has at the time of the committee stage. 
Okay, and I'm gonna, and then, you know, we might be interested in, you know, like this might be different for certain types of committees. And so here, these are some, these are three substantive committees. Here, this is, uh, financial services, agriculture, and transportation infrastructure in the House. So these are committees that deal with very, um, specific policy issues. And you see here that it goes up and down, but there's no, there's no stark trend. There's no similar trend that we see, um, that, that we saw in the, um, when we saw the growth of polarization during the same time. And so we actually, we don't see as much polarization happening at this committee stage right here, at least not as much that the, um, not enough for the minority party to want to document it. So we can get more into that in the Q&A if you're interested in that, uh, in that relationship. Okay, but this is the exception here. And so these are three committees that are in the House that are considered the powerful committees that the party leaders really care about who are on these committees because these are the committees that, um, like this, uh, the speaker or the majority party leaders really care about, and they are very um, careful about who the members are who are on that committee. And so when we look at these committees that are more likely to be, let's say, controlled by party leaders, we see an increase in the amount of, across from 1995 to present, right? We see, we do see this slight increase in the amount of reports with minority dissent. I forgot to mention the blue shaded line there is that is that period of time in which the Democrats were in the majority and the and then unshaded are the times when the Republicans had a majority. So we do see here right there is some heterogeneity in that the committees that party leaders are really concerned about that party leaders control, we do see an increase in the amount of dis- amount of committee reports with that minority dissent when um during the, at the same time when we were at the same time as we're seeing the patterns increase uh, in the amount of polarization in Congress. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Pamela. Um, our second panelist is Stephen Hayward. Uh, Stephen is a senior resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies here at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's also the Thomas Smith Distinguished Fellow at Ashland University, where he directs their program on political economy. Um, so Stephen, he writes on topics ranging from environmentalism to economics and public policy to law. He's published widely uh, in outlets such as National Review, Reason, The Weekly Standard, The American Spectator, The Public Interest, uh, and Policy Review. He's an expert on Ronald Reagan, and he's the author of a two-volume narrative history uh, of Reagan and his effect on American political life. Um, so with that, I introduce Stephen. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. I'm, I'm going to do this old school without PowerPoint, and as you, you might have picked up a little bit of a hint from Sarah's brief recitation. One obsolete note, I'm actually now a senior fellow. Actually, I'm not senior enough yet, even though I feel senior these days, at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington. Um, that sort of fits in a little bit with our theme here. Uh, but I guess there's no real reason to be coy. I am, in fact, a certified card-carrying member of the vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, and I'm really delighted to be here today. Uh, not so much because uh, uh, I like fighting surrounded. Well, there's a bit of that. Um, but I spent the last three days as an inmate at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And, you know, Boulder likes to be the Berkeley of the Rockies, and they really can't quite pull it off. Uh, and, and, but they have this annual conference on world affairs. It goes for five days, and it's, you know, like 125 speakers. And being Boulder, they're mostly fairly on the progressive end of the spectrum. I'm about the only one who's to the right of Trotsky. And what well, they really overworked me when I go there. I'm going on four or five panels uh, over four days. 
I think it was two panels a day plus a classroom visit and dinner and a whole bunch of things. Um, and um, it's exhausting. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I get overwhelmed after a while. You know that black hole they discovered the other day? Yeah, that was actually created by me and Ian Milheiser from the Center of American Progress in a worldwide wrestling federation smackdown. I had this wonderful panel with Anna Cabrera from CNN about the media, and that was fun. So if you think the Jim Acosta show is fun, just imagine what the press room would be like if Helen Thomas was still in the front row. Um, but, it, but the point is, is that at the end of it yesterday, when I you know, headed to the airport to fly out here to be here today, I told my, my very gracious host, and I like all these people, I said, you know, I need to restore my sanity. I need to get back to Berkeley as fast as I can. <laughs> so here I am. Uh, I thought I'd try and do two things here, or, or, or combine two things. One is, is um, I've come reluctantly to the conclusion I really need to learn game theory, because I think maybe we can apply some game theory to this problem of lack of bipartisan cooperation in Congress. And this is a really bad idea, because I don't know game theory not even the fine points. I don't even know the basic points. And so what I might try to do here in launching is likely cringe-inducing for the people here who do know game theory. And I apologize for all that. My hope is, is that maybe you can sort me out or if there's the germ of something workable, someone can take it and run with it. Uh, but, you know, one of the basic conceptions for undergraduate lease of game theory is one form or another a prisoner's dilemma. You have either you know, two individuals or two entities of some kind, and they need to make decisions in isolation from one another about whether to cooperate or, as the term goes, defect. And uh, you know what's called prisoner's dilemma, because sometimes it's two criminals have been arrested for a crime. You're not sure who's, which one did it. They probably both did it, but who confesses and doesn't depends on the outcome. And the game is rigged such that the, uh, the earlier version was about nuclear weapons. That's how I learned it 40 years ago from Tom Schelling, who I knew a little bit. Uh, and the way the game is rigged uh, to do iterations of decisions is both parties are rewarded in the long term by cooperation. Uh, but there can be short-term rewards for defecting and not cooperating if the other party cooperates with the, whoever the neutral third party is. So if you, want, if you want to translate this, I think, to the American political scene, especially with our separation of powers, you know, the executive always has, by the nature of responsibility, as Hamilton explained it, uh, the duty of being the responsible or the cooperative party. I don't mean cooperative and wanting to be bipartisan necessarily or, you know, reach compromise, but the responsibility of the executive, uh, by our constitutional nature, makes the president inclined toward um, uh, cooperation. And we've seen, at least since the Gingrich years, there are short-term rewards for defecting in being intransigently in opposition because you're rewarded the next midterm election and then maybe you catch the the, uh, uh, the grand prize uh, in a couple of years and you get the presidency. And a good example of this in action would be President Obama in a certain way. Just one little example that you may remember. You know, when he was a senator, he'd say, and on the Senate, voting against raising the debt ceiling. It's immoral to raise the debt ceiling. I'm voting no. Of course, when he's president, got to raise the debt ceiling. Why? He's responsible for it then. You know, as a legislator, and it, I, you know, Republicans say that too, and they do the same thing, right? Um, but Obama's the most recent example of that. Trump doesn't care about the debt. Never mind that for the moment. Now, and we've had divided government most of the time, really going all the way back to 1946, if you think about it, where one house or the other is controlled by the other party. And yet, we haven't seen this defection pattern I just described of the polarized times of of recent years until, like I say, just the last 20 years or so, we didn't see much of that kind of defection 
in game theory terms in the 50s or 60s or 70s or the 80s. So I, I want to do a case study here and walk through it a little bit. And it's to compare the tax reform that just passed with the tax reform of 1986. The tax reform that passed under Trump was passed on a strictly partisan basis with only Republican votes. has a lot of big things in it. The tax reform of 1986 passed on a broad bipartisan basis. And so the first thing it says, well, those are the good old days uh, when we weren't quite as polarized, when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill got along and had a drink together at the end of the day, those two old Irishmen. That is much exaggerated, by the way. Uh, but nonetheless, there's some element of truth to that. But I think there's more to that story and more lessons to be learned from that than simply attributing it to a different era and a different style. So I think I need to walk through the history of this a little bit, part to refresh the memories of people my age and also for students who probably don't know the story. Uh, so remember that in 1981, Ronald Reagan comes to office, and one of his central ideas is reducing marginal income tax rates by a third. And he won that battle. I mean, he reduced the top rate from 50% to about 38%. Uh, it was a close-run thing. It did pass the Senate 89 to 10. The House was closer. Uh, it, it, um, you talk about the contingencies of history. I am not convinced he would have won as broadly as he did. He might have gotten something if he hadn't been shot. And, that, you know, the chapter in my book about this is actually 24,000 words long, and I should have made it a whole book. That, that You could do a whole book between the election day and the end of July when it passes the House. Uh, and it's quite dramatic and interesting because... You know, you still had the parties hadn't quite solidified their homogeneity yet. I think by my calculation, there were 17 liberal Republican senators in 1981. Today, there's maybe one some of the time, Susan Collins. She's still way to the right of Charles Percy or Lowell Weicker, who Reagan in his diary called the no-good pompous fathead. But the point is, is Reagan wants this big triumph, uh, and but he's not done. He's talked about more tax reform. He, by the way, thought we should abolish the corporate income tax. Standing in the wings as his successor, remember, was the young Jack Kemp. Of course, he wanted to, you know, his idea was cut taxes to zero and keep going, right? That was his sort of only idea. And then along about 1983, uh, two Democrats, Richard Gephardt in the House and Bill Bradley in the Senate, uh, published an article uh, in Washington Post somewhere, but then privately were saying, you know, let's not give up as Democrats on being the party of tax reform. Why don't we compete with the Republicans on this issue? Why don't we advocate for tax simplification and lowering the rates for everybody, cutting out a lot of deductions for special interests and so forth, and and try and steal this issue, at least contend with the Republicans for that issue. And they went to Walter Mondale in 1984 when he was closing in on the nomination to run against Reagan, and Mondale... Um, He's a great old guy, still with us all these years later. You know, but he's an old New Deal Democrat, right? And he told Bradley and Gephardt, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. I'm committed to raising taxes uh, in the name of fairness. His rhetoric was similar to what we're hearing today from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Uh, and he said, I just can't do it. Reagan, by the way, got wind of all this and said, they're not going to outflank me. And he said, I'm going to set in motion a study of my own further round of tax reform. And we'll do it after the election. Come back to that point. So Walter Mondale ran on the uh, explicitly on the promise he was going to raise all our taxes, and he went on to uh, uh, win a landslide in one state. So that's important because uh, one of the lessons they took away from it is, I guess tax raising is not going to work for us very well. So in early 1985, the Democrats in the Congress said to Reagan, OK, we'll cooperate on a bipartisan bill. Now pause there for a moment. One of the central features of the one that just passed recently was the 
severe limitation of the state and local tax deduction, the SALT deduction, right? It's actually my favorite part of the bill because I'm a, I'm a, you know, a mean, ornery person, and I love a tax increase that hits wealthy Democrats, which it really does. Um, and by the way, if it was the classroom, I'd say to students, when McConnell heard the Democrats weren't interested in dealing on the tax bill, was he mad? No, he was delighted because it meant that they were going to be able to pass this bill the way Republicans wanted to, which wasn't automatic. They have their own interests. A lot of House Republicans did not want to get rid of the state and local tax deduction, and that's why they kept a little of it available, up to $10,000. And it may have cost the House Republicans some seats, especially here in California. But in 1985, when the Democrats and Republicans sat down together, Reagan proposed getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. In his, you know, that was his first proposal on the table. There was a governor of New York named Cuomo, just like there is now, and he went on the warpath. And the Democrats said to President Reagan, says, look, that's a deal breaker. We can't have that. That's a dagger, as it is today, that's a dagger at the heart of high-tax blue states. And so it got dropped. And then they went on and lowered rates to, what, 14 and 28 percent and lots of other things. Uh, one of the ironies here is, is that some of the defects of that tax bill are what led to us wanting to do the one we just passed. Reagan, who said he wanted to lower the corporate income taxes to eliminate it, that bill actually raised taxes on corporations so you could lower them on individuals because Reagan always thought individual tax cuts more important than corporate tax cuts. Well, that's flipped around a bit now. Um, important thing to remember currently is that I think they're, like the immigration uh, uh, issue that um, Mo was mentioning this morning, um, you know, President Obama had said a few years ago that he thought the corporate tax system needed overhauling and the rate ought to be about 25%, down from 35 or so. Hillary Clinton, when she was in the Senate, if you go back around 2007, talked about modernizing our corporate tax code, which was really code for, yeah, we need to harmonize it with the world better. So the point is, there was some consensus, some agreement between Democrats and Republicans on the substance of the tax code now. Uh, and my, uh, this is my opinion, but if there had been five Democrats in the Senate, or maybe just one, you know, Ted Kennedy was instrumental to No Child Left Behind, passing out of the bipartisan way in 2001. Anyway, if you had five Democrats who said, we'll vote for some kind of tax reform and we'll deal on it, I think you could have struck the state and local tax deduction out of this. Uh, now, there's a couple of additional lessons to be uh, made from this and drawn from this, and I'll draw to a close. Uh, one is, as I mentioned something important, the two parties deciding to compete over an issue. That's why we got no child left behind. You know, we, you know I've done a lot of work on environmental politics, and for a long time I've been asking, why can we get no child left behind, which everybody hates? Why? Because it's traditional give-and-take compromise politics. But we can't get a no-species-left-behind act that's actually meaningful. Um, we could go on a long time about that, but one reason is, is uh, there's no competition on environmental policy between the two parties. But there is for education because there has to be. It's a high salience issue for voters. Both parties have to have a K-12 education game. It's always why it's high on the list. And so that means they're going to compete for an issue. There's more uh, reason that they're going to deal with it in Congress and elsewhere. Second thing is, notice that Reagan said, uh, I'm going to do a plan. We're going to take up tax reform in the second term. Democrats had learned their lesson from getting uh, shellacked, as, to use Obama's more recent word, in 84. Uh, so it's a second-term deal, right? They didn't defeat Reagan, um, but we still want to compete for an issue. 
And so what did Trump say about health care recently? Well, let's do real health care reform. I mean, this is funny, of course, because everyone has big, beautiful health care, and in one month in office, he says, gosh, health care is complicated. I had no idea. You know, who could see that coming? But there you are. I mean, he says, we'll do health care in a second term. Uh, you had the divided Congress in 85, 86, right? Democrats held the House, Republicans held the Senate, sort of like today. Um, Immigration seems like a reach, but health care may be one chance in ten that they might actually make some decent movement in the right direction. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is I mentioned the contingency of Reagan being shot to the whole dynamic. i just say one more thing about that. I mean, there were so many Republicans who hated his tax cut plan, key Republicans like Bob Dole and Pete Domenici. I interviewed Pete Domenici around 2004. He was very old right before he died, and he still hates Jack Kemp. Right? So there was a lot of Republican opposition, not to mention Democrats who didn't like it, especially in the House. Um, But the obvious exogenous problem now is Trump himself, right? Um, That's what economists call something like an exogenous event, right? Uh, It's uh, who knows if he would be capable of that sort of thing, this sort of legendary dealmaker, but the dysfunctionalities of things, I don't know. Uh, But I can also see some other things. You know, I've been talking to Henry Olson a bit. I have 10 seconds left, according to my clock. Talking to Henry Olson a bit about, uh, you know, Mo, you said this morning that there's zero chance of electoral college being changed. And I like the electoral college because, of course, I do. Um, but if we have another kind of election like the one we just had, I think it's a disaster. Uh, and I could see some interesting deals possibly getting some traction. Maybe I'm too hopeful because I, you know, I take my advice from you. Um, but I will stop there. We can take up, you know, follow-up thoughts here during the comment period. Thank you very much. Okay, um, and now we have a third panelist, Jack Pitney. Welcome. Um, Jack is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Politics at Claremont McKenna College. Um, he writes widely on all topics related to American government uh, and Congress. He's the author, co-author, or editor of, I counted, nine books, um, including a book on the 2012 election, a book on the 2016 election, um, on Republicans in the House during the 1990s, um, and also last year, or the year before, an edited volume titled, Is Congress Broken? Um, and he also served as acting director of the research department of the Republican National Committee in 90 and 91. Thank you for coming, and welcome. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Okay, thank you. Uh, We didn't arrange it this way, but uh, the presentation I uh, prepared actually fits perfectly uh, with what Pamela and Steve uh, have talked about. So uh, this is not a conspiracy. We actually, uh, you know, it actually fits in all together. The title is Congress Acts Sometimes. And uh, just to follow up on, uh, on the data that Pamela presented, Uh, There are certain occasions, even today, where Congress can actually, you know, do stuff. Uh, And uh, uh, data you presented was through the 113th Congress. This is from 
the 115th. And as you can see, uh, there were a number of major bills not only passed, uh, you know, the tax bill was, as he pointed out, on a, on a partisan basis, but a number of fairly significant bills uh, that passed on a bipartisan basis in both chambers. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, Iran, uh, Russia and Iran sanctions, FAA reauthorization, opioid epidemic, the farm bill. Criminal justice reform. Now, criminal justice reform is a very interesting uh, topic because uh, you had some uh, not only bipartisan but actually bi-ideological support there uh, because liberals, of course, uh, are interested in the subject because of uh, social justice. Uh, conservatives saw that uh, over-incarceration is damned expensive, uh, and so there was a possibility for uh, for agreement and bipartisanship. It also helped in the Trump White House that Jared Kushner's father had been in prison. Uh, so that created some uh, interest in an unusual place. Uh, but uh, again, veterans' health choice, uh, Dodd-Frank reforms, grain glitch, uh, uh, chip, and so on. So what's going on here? Uh, you could draw a distinction between, uh, for those of you who still read print newspapers, uh, A1, uh, page A1 issues and page A16 issues. Uh, the, or uh, if you're digital only, uh, homepage issues and scroll down issues. Uh, so take the analogy you like. Uh, the A1 issues are the things that we're, we talk about in the, the context of polarization and gridlock, uh, immigration, uh, government shutdowns. Uh, that's where, and I think you uh, pointed out, the leadership engagement is is heavy on the high-profile bills. Uh, and that's where the partisan rancor comes in and the two parties are fighting uh, against each other. Then there is a, a, another level, significant bills, but not necessarily the ones that catch the attention of people who aren't political junkies, uh, who uh, aren't, aren't in the 99% who don't read the New York Times. Uh and I think these mostly fall into that category. Uh, this is one which people at uh, the committee level uh, often work together. Uh, so how does this happen? You know, you might be, uh, by the way, you might be wondering, aha, wait a minute. All of this happened under unified control of the government. Obviously, now that we have split party control and divided government, uh, this kind of cooperation isn't possible. Actually, it is. Uh, not that long ago, uh, a big lands bill, and this was coverage in the uh, Washington Post, uh, biggest public lands bill in a decade, maybe a generation, uh, and uh, uh, Juliet Alperin uh, in the Washington Post writes about a series of compromises, winning over advocacy groups, conservationists, geologists, Native Americans. Those of you who are into uh, conservation and public lands know this was a big deal. So how do these things happen? Well, uh, there's a really neat book uh, by Jill Lawrence. I, uh, I'm not pitching any of my books, uh, but I am pitching Jill's book here, The Art of the Political Deal. Uh, it hasn't gotten as much attention as it should have. And it's a series of case studies from recent years uh, about how exactly this happened. How did you manage, at a time of polarization, to get 
bipartisan agreement on important legislation. What are some elements? Well, element one is trust. What do we now? There's an important distinction here between trust and affection. Now, Steve pointed out, and I, again, uh, pitching someone else's book, I strongly recommend Steve's uh, history of the Reagan years. Uh, you know, the, the mythology about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, uh, that they were two old Irish guys and they, you know, they great friends. No, no, they hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. But they were old school when they shook hands, made a deal, that was that. Uh, and so that's something that's uh, important to keep in mind, the element of trust. Even though they hated each other, Tip O'Neill publicly said Ronald Reagan was evil. The evil is in the White House at the present time. Uh, and I can tell you from working on Capitol Hill during the 1980s, the things that Republicans said about Tip O'Neill weren't any better. Trust me on that. Uh, but, but, but old school guys shake, uh, you know, deals a deal, shake hands, and they were able to reach uh, certain agreements, social security and uh, other legislation. Two, privacy. Now, a uh, big buzzword in the past decade, transparency. Transparency is a good thing up to a point. Uh, there is a role for private negotiation, private deliberation, private deal-making. After all, the Constitution of the United States was drafted behind closed doors. That was a strict rule. And so there has to be a certain space for private dealing and private negotiation. And in all the case studies, there were occasions where legislators would uh, get together quietly and hash out the details of legislation. And again, this is why, uh, this is the advantage of the uh, issues on page A16 as opposed to the issues on page A1. Agreement on facts. Uh, now, uh, another uh, another myth is that Daniel Patrick Moynihan coined this. He actually stole it from James Schlesinger. Well, everybody is entitled to his own opinions, but not his own facts. Uh, that's actually a hell of a Moynihan imitation, if I say. I once poured for him when I was a Senate staffer. That was a very busy day. Uh, anyway. And uh, there has to be some kind of agreement on what the contours of the issue really are. Uh, in the case, say, of Social Security in the 1980s, everybody agreed uh, what the numbers were going in. That is not always the case. Not always the case with uh, issues today. Say, immigration. Uh, uh, there are certain aspects of the immigration issue where the numbers are straightforward. Others, there's more uncertainty. How many undocumented aliens are there in the United States? By definition, undocumented aliens try not to be counted. Uh, so there's some difference. Now, Trump at one point said there were 50 million. It's a little bit on the high side, uh, to put it mildly. But uh, the uh, degree of uncertainty there is one of the many things that hampers uh, bipartisan compromise. And then fear of failure. What happens if nothing happens? Uh, and that is a constraint uh, in the case, again, Social Security reform in the 1980s. Another book that I'd recommend, Paul Light's book, uh, years ago, very, very good. Uh, when uh, the uh, collapse of Social Security was imminent, that got politicians' attention in a major way, and that was an action-forcing mechanism. Uh, another uh, example that uh, Jill talks about is uh, veterans' reform legislation. A, a lot of you remember a few years ago the tremendous scandal that arose out of Phoenix 
veterans dying while they were on the waiting list. That uh, created a very strong demand for action. Veterans groups started uh, uh, getting very active on that. And if you're a politician, one group you don't want to offend are veterans groups. Uh, so you had uh, bipartisan cooperation between John McCain and Bernie Sanders. Now, those are two guys who didn't have anything uh, much in common, except being very old. Bernie Sanders, yeah, he's old, what he has in common with John McCain, the old and cranky. Uh, but they were able to get together. They had, you know, Bernie Sanders, is, uh, you know, John McCain wants to honor American veterans, honor people in, uh, in uniform. Uh, Bernie Sanders wants to extend uh, social benefits, and they found common ground there, and they were able to do a deal. Uh, and um, so bottom line is uh, it is possible for Congress to pass significant legislation, not all the time, but sometimes. Okay, that's the good news. Uh, now, uh, there are some downers here. One is uh, diminished congressional capacity in recent years. In order to reach uh, agreement on legislation, in order to uh, have agreement on facts, uh, you need a solid basis of information. And if you look at the uh, staffing levels in Congress, uh, Congress is spending a lot of money on itself, but it's reallocating where it puts the money. Back in the day, back when I was working on the Hill in the 1980s, uh, you had very substantial staffs of the committees. You had uh, really, really strong Congressional Research Service, uh, General Accounting Office, now the Government Accountability Office, uh, the Office of Te Technology Assessment, uh, which was since zeroed out. And uh, uh, CRS and GAO are smaller than they were in those days. Uh, instead, uh, the staff money is uh, going to uh, staffers who focus on messaging. So instead of uh, experienced hands in the committees, you have uh, 20-somethings who are good at tweets. No offense to the 20-somethings in the audience, uh, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the greatest of deliberation. And uh, the second thing in the mega... Uh, uh, you know, not to end on a downer, but I'll end on a downer. Uh, the mega challenge for deliberation, the national debt. Uh, now, with the lands bill, you could reach agreement because you could put together a bill that has something for everybody. It was win-win-win all around. Uh, everybody could get a goodie out of the lands bill. As you can see, uh, the federal debt is uh, growing and, by all estimates, is uh, going to grow in a very big way. Now, some of this, a little bit of this is the uh, 2017 tax bill, but you, know, you have to be careful not to exaggerate uh, the impact of that bill. This graph would look pretty much the same without that. Uh, so uh, as I say in my classrooms, what is the biggest social problem in the United States? And I always point to myself, the baby boom generation. Uh, because in the 1950s, we bankrupted the schools. In 1960s and 70s, we caused the greatest crime wave in American history. And as we shuffle off this mortal coil, uh, we are bankrupting the entitlement programs. Thank you. God bless you and good night. Um, and so that's what's going, uh, a large part of what's going on there. Uh, baby boomers are uh, collecting a lot, Social Security and Medicare, uh, other programs leading to an increase in the debt. And the problem is there is no solution to this that is painless. Uh, 
yeah, you can talk about cutting waste, fraud, and abuse, and that's fine. It's kind of like shoveling the snow on Mount Everest. Uh, it's, uh, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Uh, so uh, you cut spending, you raise taxes. You know, take your pick. Uh, both of those uh, alternatives are politically painful. Uh, right now, in terms of fear of failure, uh, you don't really get the uh, candidates on either side talking in a very serious way about the looming uh, debt problem because, well, uh, the fear of failure isn't there. Uh, there are some economists who say, well, you know, maybe we can, uh, you know, do just fine with sustained levels of uh, federal debt in excess of 100% of GDP, even though that has never happened before in the entire history of this country, except for that little spike uh, at World War II, and everybody knew it was just going to be a spike. Well, you know, uh, this is uh, some, something for which we do not have a historical experience. Maybe everything will be okay. Maybe monkeys will fly out of my ear. Who knows? Uh, but we do know that the uh, extreme levels of federal debt, at very least, are going to lead to greatly increased uh, expenditures on debt service, and interest on the debt's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. That's going to be a huge problem. And uh, this is going to be the greatest challenge for bipartisan cooperation uh, in, the, uh, in the years ahead. So don't mean to end on a, on a bummer note, but that's uh, the problem, especially for the undergraduates. This is uh, what you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your lives. All right, questions, please, for the panelists. Am I, am I on? Um, I have a question. As polarization in politics increases, it seems likely that federal legislatures will get reelected again and again. Should we consider term limits for senators and congressmen? I use, uh, yeah, I voted for term limits in California uh, in 1990, and having watched Sacramento in the years since, I have changed my mind. Uh, I don't think term limits have had the uh, effect that uh, has been advertised. Uh, you have a tremendous loss of institutional memory uh, and a, a shift of power uh, away from the uh, from elected officials to uh, lobbyists who have uh, more of a monopoly on knowledge and information. How I uh, full disclosure, I am married to a lobbyist, so part, partly that's that's okay in our household, but uh, if you're thinking about the larger public good, I, uh, I'm troubled by that. Ditto. You, if you want, if you're thinking about it in the context of whether or not to increase or decrease polarization, then I think the question is, well, if we introduce term limits, then you're going to get new candidates, and those candidates are the ones, like if we, like the graph that I had shown is um, right now we have some other scholars who show that uh, it's the replacement of old candidates with new candidates that is almost driving half of the polarization that we see. And so if term limits are going to then, you know, keep turning over new people, and if the types of people who are running are going to be, you know, if that doesn't change, which, you know, if that, if, if we then get into, you know, like that type of argument, then it doesn't, it won't necessarily decrease polarization by itself. This doesn't deal with uh, 
with federal law, but local. Uh, since all of you are California residents, all three of you, and talking about bipartisanship and getting things done, what's your view of the provision of the Brown Act that prevents city council members from getting together privately to reach a majority on a, on a piece of city business? Hmm. Well, I may take a stab at that, although actually you ought to have my wife here because she's a member of the Fair Political Practices Commission here in the state. Although actually she's today in Washington, D.C., where she's on the Office of Congressional Ethics. So she's a walking federalism problem. She's <laughs> made co-chair, actually, uh, this year. Um, uh, let me put it this way. You mentioned the local level, and we talk about polarization on the national scene. So I live in this little beach. My permanent home is this little beach town on the central coast. And they have a water district. And, of course, you all know the Mark Twain waters are fighting and all serious issues. But the, the, uh, the atmosphere and mood of the hearings and the people who attend them, it's just the foulest thing I've ever seen. It's been this way for quite a while. And the point is, is that, you know, some of the divisions we talk about, it's not just the Washington thing. It's not just the cable news networks. It now goes all the way down. And, you know, I go, <laughs> So, um, yeah, we want open meetings and transparency. And on the other hand, uh, I, you know, I've been saying partly for the nomination process and other things, we really ought to bring back the smoke-filled rooms. First of all, think how great they'd be with what's legal today. Uh, how, think how great those smoke-filled rooms would be. But, and of course, there's huge corruption problems and influence problems there. And I could see all kinds of things being worse maybe than they were in the, you know, 80, 90, 100 years ago when we started you know, popular primaries and such. Um, but I think we lost some capacities for – actually, forget I won't be coy about this at all. I told Jack earlier that, you know, if we had the old smoke-filled room system, Donald Trump would never have been the nominee, right? But Ronald Reagan might not have been one either. So it, this is tricky, right, uh, to figure out how it would go. But uh, but I don't know. I, I don't have a programmatic answer for you about where the line should be drawn. My wife certainly thinks a lot, of, a lot about this because the FPPC deals with Brown Act issues all the time. Uh, related issue, uh, not, not directly uh, uh, to your question, but uh, the broader problem that underlies it. Uh, a term that's uh, coming into use in communication studies is news deserts. Uh, that is the lack of coverage of local news. Uh, if you look at areas, uh, communities where there has been uh, massive corruption, uh, not surprisingly, that's where you don't have a great, you don't have a presence of a local newspaper, you don't have uh, good news coverage. The city of Bell in, uh, in Southern California being uh, an example of that. Uh, with the growing gap between the two political parties, how do you think that the uh, partisan the partisanship in the judiciary branch affects that relationship? How the sorry, you're asking how the partisanship in the judiciary branch affects the polarization in Congress? Yeah. Um, I'm actually not. I haven't. I'm not familiar with uh, anything about that direction. So, so, so I, I will say, you know, the other, we might think like the other direction in which, you know, like going from, con, you know, like if we think about Congress, then, you know, like, uh, sorry, the Senate, let's say, and Senate Judiciary holding hearings and, you know, like dealing with, uh, the nominations of Supreme Court justices and the nominations of other federal judges, we might think that they're, 
uh, might be some, I'm, I'm not familiar with this, but there might be some relationship with how that polarization might carry through in, in uh, how they treat nominees during the hearings and then, you know, like those nominees that then end up on the bench. But I'm not sure about how, how the other direction. Uh, I'm not aware of anything. Do you guys? Well, um, I think I saw Mo Fiorina twitching in a seat back there. I'll bet you know something, Mo, that we don't. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to have to I'm going to have to figure it out. Uh, I, I know that there is. I, I think there may be a little bit of empirical work on this, since we like to emphasize empirical work here at the Travers Department. Uh, but I, I haven't seen it for a while. One thing I know is. Um, well, the courts issue, judicial issues are getting more polarized and have been for at least 30 years since the Bork nomination changed the rules, as I put it, of how this is going to work. Uh, I think this is becoming more explicit. You know, we have these five, four cases at the court and so forth. Um, but one interesting thing is, is while the polarization of the country is leading to, you know, what's the approval rating of Congress? It's, you know, 10 percent. Is it up to 20? Oh, so it's now up from just family members and pets, <laughs> right, and your staff. Uh, Last I looked, and it's been a while, last I look is that public respect for the judiciary is still pretty high. Not as high as the military, uh, but it's certainly higher than Congress and I think higher than Trump. You know, just public confidence in the – now, I actually think part of that I, – I, again, I have no evidence for this, uh, but my hunch about it is part of it is because it's not televised. Uh, you know, federal court hearings at the Supreme Court, you can listen to the Supreme Court cases after they're done, but they're not televised. And God help us if they're televised. I hope they never do, because I think lawyers will grandstand, the justices will grandstand. They already, it's kind of, if you ever listen to one of these things, they're, it can be kind of chaotic with the lawyer can't even finish a first sentence before one of the justices is after them. Um, and I think it would get worse. And then you'd see these people, by the way. Uh, you know, a lot of Supreme Court justices, some of them, you know, notorious RBG, right? She's a sort of pop culture figure. But uh, a lot of them you don't recognize. Uh, and I think that's a good thing for them. I got a great story about Clarence Thomas that very quickly he doesn't get – he drives his RV across the country in the summer. People don't recognize him. He drives a big RV, and he parks at Walmart like people do, and they'll have the rock star buses are parked there, and our drivers come to him and say, hey, that's a great rig you got, man. Who do you drive for? And Justice Tom says, oh, Miss Ginny over there. Uh, one, uh, one important uh, bit of context here, uh, we had a long period where Supreme Court nominations weren't particularly political. Kennedy-Nixon debates, if you read the Kennedy-Nixon debates, nobody even bothered to ask them. Uh, what kind of justice they'd nominate to the court. They, they didn't even think of the question. It, it, it was it was not that political. But there have been times at the past when it was. Think of another set of debates, Lincoln-Douglas, 1858, in which Lincoln actually kind of edged close to conspiracy theory, uh, talking about, uh, you know, alleging a conspiracy between Justice Taney and James Buchanan, uh, to nationalize uh, slavery. So, again, this is something that's waxed and waned over a, a course of history. You can add the Federalists packing the courts in 1800 yeah. is another example of this. Oh, yeah, but. yeah. And, and read, the, read the facts of Marbury versus Madison. It, it, you know, Marshall was the guy who was supposed to deliver the... Uh, judicial right. nominations, and he w- then he became the chief justice. You know, today, we people be talking about impeachment for him yeah. for not recusing himself. No, massive ethics violation today yeah. to do that. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. So, so I was wondering, and, and I don't want to sound too partisan, even though there's two Republicans on the panel, um, but <laughs> two. Right. I, I think for, from, from 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 the other side, there's a sense that the Republican Party of Reagan is 
is, is, is history. Bob Dole is no longer in the Senate, and he, yeah. to some degree, looks very different from, from the way the senators look now. Um, and he, here's my question, though. Without it being critical, is a sense that um, that I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party have decided now it's not a question of negotiating with Republicans. That's they're not. Real, there's a sort of an anti-government. Anything the government does is bad. Point of view, um, and that therefore, like for example, on health care reform, and something that I followed very closely, the Republicans just weren't serious. I mean, they just. It, Sorry, that, that I don't think to me that's not a partisan point. Um, so, I, and, and I think you make, make that case on, on a number of other things. So, you know, I'm delighted that there are examples where, where things happened in the last Congress. But I think on a number of very salient major issues, there's a sort of an anti-government, uh, you know, a nihilist point of view that if that it's bad. If the Democrats come up with it, by definition, it's bad um, on the other side, and, and that's partly what animate seems to animate certain things. So I was wondering in terms of getting around that, because I don't, I mean, it, the partisan doesn't matter. What matters to me is, is actually getting things done. And I don't know how one does that in that situation. Well, one solution to the problem is uh, just don't tell Trump about the issue. Uh, just, just lead him into the signing ceremony. Uh, that actually was kind of the case with uh, those, those A16 issues I, I mentioned. Uh, I do think there are certain issues that... Uh, uh, remain uh, susceptible to bipartisanship. I study disability issues, and disability issues have traditionally been, and still largely are with some exceptions, uh, uh, bipartisan. Uh, the ABLE Act a couple of years ago for uh, uh, educational accounts, uh, uh, the bipartisan pushback against defunding uh, Special Olympics would be uh, another example. Uh, there is polarization with the issue, but it's not partisan. Uh, it has to do with the specifics of the issue. Uh, in the case of autism uh, specifically, you've got the people who believe in the vaccine theory versus sane people. You've got uh, you, you, you've, you've got the uh, autistic self-advocates versus uh, the, the parents of uh People with severe autism, and that you know the uh, the fights are very very nasty. Uh, you know, my my saying is uh, autism politics is like faculty politics on crystal meth, uh, but it's not partisan. The lines are not partisan, uh, and that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite agree with the premise of the question. I'll just give you one example. I mean, I go through health care a bit, and there's some stories to that. It'll take a while, but since Republicans recaptured the Senate, they've come closer than Congress has in years in actually doing the budget process right, you know, doing 13 separate appropriation bills like the Budget Act of 1974 prescribes us to do. Democrats weren't doing that at all. And that's actually quite important, I think. They didn't, they weren't perfect about it. They didn't get them all done. We still have these continuing resolution fights, but that's one of their primary jobs, and they've actually done it pretty well. Just to mention one quick one. Um, but just to add one last thing, not to be the data nerd, but if, uh, if I think your, your, uh, intuition is a little bit, inc- is a little bit correct in that I think, uh, Nolan McCarty has a paper in which he shows that the Ten in the post-war period after World War II, the ten most polarized uh, congressional terms produced much, like about just over ten pieces of significant or landmark legislation, whereas the ten least polarized congressional terms produced over sixteen. 
So there is a difference, you know, I mean, we're talk- if we're talking about, you know, obviously when we talk about health care reform or these landmark or significant pieces of legislation, there's a lot of nuance around it. And so, uh, you know, like, you know, what's the difference between passing one more in one term versus one, you know, one less in another term? But then I think that's, you know, the case studies that you're presenting are, you know, like can speak to, can speak to how like things are still getting done, even though we do have examples of large failures. So, um, if the Republicans are moving so far to the right and the Democrats are staying fairly moderate, what could be possibly, in your opinion, some of the reasons for that underlying? Well, I'd see. Actually, well, we'll see how serious some of the leading Democrats are in the things they say they want right now. But certainly Medicare for all, uh, possibly reparations, going back to 1950s tax rates, that's not staying put. That's moving distinctly to the left. Uh, we'll see, like I say, if they really unfold those in a presidential campaign on the platform. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, one th- I didn't have time to develop it. I think that uh, what might break, might actually have a really a breaking point and a new pattern actually connects to where you left off, Jack, which is, are we going to get a crisis, financial crisis, either like the one we had 10 years ago or one that's like that but related to... Uh, the economics are tricky because we can actually behave badly for much longer than another country is what makes us even worse, right? Uh, but at that point, you might have a, a point where one or both parties risk being punished by the public or their own voters such that they have to get together. And you mean you saw this a little bit in microcosm in 2008. You know, that financial crisis came up very suddenly when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Uh, they come in with three pages and over the weekend and say, we want $800 billion. We want it right now. That was what Paulson and Republican. Oh, no, the Congress voted it down pretty heavily. The Democrats had the House and the Senate both, right? The Congress voted it down and then the markets open Monday morning and fall 800 points. And then Congress says, Oh, uh, come back. Well, actually now we're ready to vote for it, right? Um, and so, you know, think something like that might happen, but. It's that on a much bigger scale, potentially. Uh, this is, I mean, I'm with Jack. This is a really scary thing, and it's hard to tell what's going to happen, but that's the kind of thing that might, might change the trajectory. Thank you all um, for your talk. Um, my question is for Dr. Ban. I, um, I'm thinking about, you know, your work in relation to Francis Lee's work on, pol- on polar- polarization governance. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we might square the circle between um, shifting social sorting, like Liliana Mason's work over time, as well as shifting kind of party polarization. Because I think what you're pointing to in your work is constant with hers, and that it's actually kind of difficult to understand different types of polarization over time, and just in terms of you know roll call votes. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts um, going forward um, on if it's actually going to become easier, because as we see more and more sorting in both dimensions, or if there are still going to be uh, perennial difficulties in understanding how we measure polarization. Sure. Um, but so first of all, I just want to clarify that 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 stuff I presented, I don't want to take credit for it. That is not my work. <laughs> that is uh, some of uh, that was uh, uh, my uh, classmates and colleagues at Harvard when I was still there for grad school. Um, well, you know, I think I, th- I think like, you know, there have been a lot of uh, empirical issues, let's say, in how to measure polarization. And I think, right, there's no perfect way to do it, right? Like we can think about if, you know, an easy way to think about it is, you know, I presented, you know, like overall levels, but, you know, like there might be polarization on certain areas or, like, you know, like on healthcare, but not on other issue areas. And so there, there's a lot of ways that we can parse this. And I don't, I think, you know, like I think the paper, the, the, the paper that I was talking about in terms of this, the Moskowitz, Rogowski, and Snyder one, they try to tackle it by 
you know, by asking members what their opinions are repeatedly on the same issue across time, and then seeing that, and you know, being able to see whether or not then that legislator is changing their opinion, changing their position on that same set of issues that they picked, or um, or or not, right? So so there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different ways to parse this, um, and I think you know I, I'm glad that there are a lot of people working on it. I just did not want to take credit for that work. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Okay, I'll ask then. Okay, so um, you you sort of framed the, the, the debt problem as something that's going to get in the way of bipartisanship, but uh, I figure we should talk about the debt because goodness knows no one else is, right? Um, so when will it take a crisis in order for this to be back on the agenda and for it to be something that uh, members of Congress are talking about again? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. Uh, I think the example uh, Steve gave was uh, was a telling one uh, about the stock market crash. It could happen any number of ways, and probably the way it will happen is the one we're not thinking of. Uh, uh, but uh, it's just hard for me to imagine that we're going to have years and years of federal debt in excess of 100% of GDP and, and something bad isn't going to happen. And the question is, how long is it going to take? Yeah, I'll say actually sort of it, partly response to the, the gentleman in the back who asked a minute ago. One of the most dismaying things to me about the Trump era is that the Republican Party at least used to give lip service to containing the debt. And their performance was not very good, but, you know, did a little of it. And now they don't even do that. And this has been going on for a while. I mean, uh, Dick Cheney's famous remark that Reagan proves deficits don't matter is a little bit out of context, but that's part, well, that's a mile marker along the way to losing any, uh, f- even rhetorical, um, uh, um, attachment to debt. I'll tell you a very, very quick story. And it's Trump's fault. A very, very quick story. Don't ask me how I know this, but, you know, Paul Ryan, who's left partly because of discouragement over this very fact, you know, he was very serious about understanding this entitlement problem and the debt bomb and uh, going in the future. And he had reform ideas. They involved painful things. And he has a really great slideshow he does. But it's 20 minutes long. And before he would agree to endorse Trump, he wanted that Trump to sit down and see it, except he knew that Trump wouldn't sit still for 20 minutes, so he shortened it to five minutes. Trump cut him off after one minute. And that's when Paul came out and said, we had a good meeting, a productive meeting, but I'm not quite there yet. It's like May of 2016. That's the backstory of what happened there. All right. I want to welcome Rob back to the stage and thank our three panelists. Uh, so uh, mainly I want to thank all of you for attending. I hope you uh, learned a lot uh, about um, this question of whether America's breaking apart and came away with a different perspective than you entered with. I think the panelists all day gave us a lot of food for thought on the issue. Uh, And I want to thank, though, before we leave, our staff that helped us organize this event. Um, in In particular, from the department, Serena, Christine, and Susan, who have been here all day and helped us make this run smoothly, and the staff here at the hotel. Uh, who managed the catering and uh, everything to make it a good day for all of us. So thanks, and with that, I will let you go out into the sunny Berkeley afternoon.